Amen. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming back and being here for this last session that I'll have with you for a while. And I thank Brother John again for inviting me to fill in for him and his time away as he and Lou have taken some R&R time. And uh, I've enjoyed being with you. You're good listeners, and that always makes preaching a little better when people listen. And some of you who have stood where I stand can tell the difference when you're not listening. So I can tell the difference. So everybody listening? All right. Okay. Well, let's, let's rehearse just a moment before we come to Matthew chapter 26. In fact, you can turn there and be ready uh, for the reading in verse 36 of Matthew 26. But um, the last Sunday and through this morning, the emphasis has been on a life uh, a life of purpose, and a life of purpose for that purpose to be fulfilled. Certain things have to happen in our lives. Now, God has a general purpose for all Christians, and he has a specific purpose for you. And there's an overlap in those two things in your life and in my life. But I believe the Bible does teach us that certain biblical principles have to be in place before that purpose can be fulfilled. Do you believe that a person can live his or her life, uh, at least a big portion of it, if not all of it, outside God's purpose, never knowing God's purpose, never fulfilling God's purpose? Happens all the time. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of the Christian life is to live a lifetime and yet never live within God's given purpose for you and for me. Now, we looked at Moses first. God had a God-given purpose for Moses. His God-given purpose was to be the emancipator of the Hebrew people who were in slavery uh, in Egypt and at the same time become a type of Christ to be the uh, Old Testament picture of, of the coming Savior who would be the emancipator, the deliverer, the Savior of God's people. First 40 years of Moses' life, he was uh, living in the home of Pharaoh, second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Second in line to the throne. And, uh, but yet as God's purpose began to well up, uh, the understanding of that purpose to well up in Moses' heart in life. And he saw the Hebrew children under oppression and in slavery. And he saw the mistreatment of a Hebrew by the Egyptians. There, there, there was something went off in him that I must intervene. I must do something. And that is the first sign that we see that Moses is beginning to move forward and fulfilling God's purpose for him. But what happened was he took matters into his own hands. He took matters into his own hands without understanding that God has a plan, but he has a way that that plan should unfold. He has a purpose, but he has his method of unfolding that purpose. We don't take God's, uh, God's purpose into our own hands and do it our own way. And I think all of us would agree that we have seen shipwrecks along the way because the people of God have taken what they understood to be the purpose of God, and it might have been clear that they understood what it was, but they didn't understand God's method of getting there. So Moses needed some time with God, so God arranged for him to be 40 years in the desert as a shepherd, as a herdsman, in the backside of the desert for 40 years. Then he met the great I am and the burning bush. And, and God spoke to him, showed him the bush, the miracle, spoke to him uh, the, the voice. So he saw a miracle and he heard a voice. He saw a bush and he heard a voice. 
And when that voice broke through to Moses and gave him the plan of action for his purpose, Moses immediately began to obey. Forty years as a prince, 40 years as a pauper in the desert, 40 years as the great prophet and patriarch of the Old Testament. But the key that unlocked uh, the purpose in Moses' life was that he came to a crisis moment that he understood that obedience to God, obedience to God's will, obedience to God's method, obedience to God's strategy and carrying out his will is something that has to take place, and he did that. Then we came to Joshua. Joshua's uh, purpose was to take the people of God into the fullness of life, the land that flows in milk and honey, with milk and honey. Uh, Moses, Moses was the emancipator, but uh, Joshua was the one to take them deep into the understanding, into the life, not just from salvation, but to sanctification and to consecration. And Joshua was facing the walled cities and the and the giants, the warrior giants, and God had a purpose to use Joshua as the one who would take his people, his people forward, and Joshua had to come to that place of seeing the commander outside the wall of Jerusalem and falling on his feet, on his face at the feet of uh, his great uh, captain of his salvation, and submission, the key for Joshua's submission, submission, to the will and purpose of God. And then this morning we were looking at the Apostle Paul and what was his purpose, what was his God-given purpose. I've pondered this this afternoon uh, a great deal more. What was his purpose? I think, I think when we look at Paul's life, we can see that there were clearly a two, was clearly a two-pronged purpose in Paul's life. Number one, was these might not be in the correct order, but I'll say number one, uh, to take the gospel to the Gentile world. In other words, to get the gospel to the world, to get the message of salvation in Christ and Christ alone to the world. And his three missionary journeys and his prison sentences, you know, oftentimes we, uh, we feel sorry for Paul being in prison so much, but you know, every time he got chained to a Roman soldier, he led him to Christ and sent out an evangelist. <laughs> and we read in the New Testament that all of Rome was already filled with Christians. Well, how did that, well, how did that happen? Well, it kind of seems to be obvious. But then the other thing I think about Paul was that, that he, he wrote half the New Testament, 13 of the 27 New Testament books, not counting Hebrews. And and Romans, the book of Romans, scholars through the ages still say that the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, is the greatest treatise on the Christian life ever written. It is a document of theology. It is a document of doctrine. In fact, the book of Romans uh, really holds the foundational stones for everything uh, that you and I believe in what our lives as Christians are built upon. And how was it that Paul penetrated the then-known world with the gospel? How was it that he could write theology and doctrine with such great clarity and depth? I'll tell you why. He had a single-minded purpose. He wasn't distracted by the trivia. He wasn't running every way but Sunday. 
He wasn't doing everything under the sun. He had a mission, and he knew that if he was going to fulfill that purpose and fulfill that mission, he had to put the blinders on like the old mule that's used for the plowing of the field, and there he goes doing his job. So single, we go from obedience to submission to single-mindedness. And we come tonight to the greatest model of all of the Christian life and one's purpose being fulfilled, and that person is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 26 and verse 36, and this comes um, uh, shortly after the explanation of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and Jesus explaining to his disciples what is going to happen, and and he predicts uh, in verse 31 Peter's denial, and then you have that braggadocious disciple saying, I will not deny you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even if I have to die, brag, 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 brag. That's Peter. Brag, 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 brag. And fell flat on his face. But he becomes, and we don't have time for that tonight, but Peter becomes a great example to us in so many other ways. But then we come now to verse 36. They've left the Lord's Supper. They've left the upper room, and they've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And he came, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. And verse 39 is the key. And he went a little farther. He went a little farther. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them asleep. And we'll end there. Not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. The word, Moses was obedience, Joshua submission, Paul single-mindedness. But the key to the life of Jesus, fulfilling God's purpose, ultimate purpose, was absolute, full, and complete surrender. What was Jesus' purpose? He came to be our Redeemer. He came to be our substitute sacrifice. He came to take our place on the cross. He came to purchase our salvation. He came to uh, put, once again, man in a right relationship with God. And he had to surrender without hesitation, reservation, or any other thing to to the will of God. May I just say to us tonight that if we really want to live in the fullness of God's purpose for us, we must come to a place of absolute surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he is our role model. We could, we could take these other men and talk about their role model for us, and they are, but Jesus is the one whose life we must pattern. But I always hasten to say this, I think it is important because I think sometimes we get a little gray area in our thinking and we try hard, we try hard. I said something in a service a few years ago and it shocked me to hear myself say it. And I was preaching and now 
Uh, if you know anything about preaching, sometimes you can be going at it and preaching and preaching and preaching and you end up saying something you hadn't thought about saying in that moment and you hear it for the first time yourself. And um, that's not always the most uh, comfortable feeling, but it, it, it happened and I heard myself saying, how many of you are trying to be Christian? How many of you are trying hard, really, really, really hard? And then I stopped and said, no, I don't want you to answer me, I'm just wanting you to think. And then I went on, how many of you are really trying hard to be a Christian? I mean, you're giving it your best. You're trying, you're trying, you're trying. And I could see everybody's wanting to say, yeah, yeah, I am, I am, I am. And I, the reason I told them not to answer me is because I didn't want to embarrass them. Because after I did all of that questioning, I heard myself say, if you're doing that, stop it. Stop it. Because no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard I try, we cannot live the Christian life. The Christian life is not you and me imitating Jesus, mimicking Jesus. It's not WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now, I have no problem with people who years ago would wear those bands on their arms and stickers on their cars, WWJD. I understood, I understood what they meant. I had no issue with that. I never told anybody don't do that. But I would say, listen... When you figure out what he would do, the problem you're going to have is that you can't do it. You can't do what Jesus would do. I can't do what Jesus would do. Only Jesus can do what Jesus can do. Only Jesus can be Jesus in us. The Christian life is not imitating Jesus. The Christian life is Jesus living his life in us and through us. It is the Galatians 2.20 principle, another word from Paul's pen. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the Christ in you. And J. Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite histories from bygone, uh, missionaries from bygone years, a wonderful man, founded China Inland Mission. I wish I had time to talk about him a little bit. A fascinating character, but J. Hudson Taylor, as a teenage boy, uh, felt a call to China, prepared to go to China, went to China, actually blazed trails through China with a machete in one hand and a Bible in the other, went where no white man had ever been before, no Westerner had ever been seen before. And then a little while after he arrived and had gone some distance inland, he began to collapse and burn out spiritually. And he came upon this um, encounter with God that he said, if, if something doesn't happen, I'm going to crash and burn and my life will be wasted even before I get started. And he said through a process of time and prayer and in the word, he discovered what he called, he coined the term, the exchange life. I must exchange who I am for who he is. I must get out of the way and let Jesus be Jesus in me. He is my wisdom. He is my strength. He is my gift. He is my ability. And that was where uh, that term came from, the exchange life from J. Hudson Taylor. But the phrase that we find here that we're building on tonight is verse 39. He went a little farther. Now, I've read this passage many, many times, but I, I can still remember the moment that phrase leaped out at me. And that's how studying the Bible does. Sometimes we... we um, uh, can read passages many times and then all of a sudden something begins to jump out at us. And, uh, and that, this one did for me. And he went a little farther. I want to show you something in this verse, those of you who are taking uh, notes. There, there's so much wrapped up in this verse. The, dis- the distance he went and surrendered. The distance. 
he went farther. We're looking at verse 39. The distance he went was farther. The posture he assumed in his surrender. He fell on his face. And then the attitude that he expressed was total abandonment to the will of God. So the distance was farther. The posture was surrender on his face. The attitude was that of total abandonment to the will of God. These three things must be true in your life and my life. We must go a little farther. Have you gone as far as you need to go to be everything God wants you to be and to know him? It's not just what you can get out of him or he can get out of you. It's going to be what you can get out of him. Have you gone far enough to experience all of that? Surrender. Now, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about words we use in our Baptist vocabulary. And two words have become almost synonymous, and they're not synonymous. We'll talk about commitment and we'll talk about surrender almost in the same breath. We'll say, well, I'm a committed Christian. I'm a committed. I'll make a commitment to this and I'll make a commitment to that. Commitment and surrender are not the same thing. Um, Commitment is a state of being involved to an obligation, an obligation or a pledge. Surrender is to hand over or to give in to another person's power or control, to give up one's rights. I can take you to the breakfast table and show you the difference between commitment and surrender. I look at scrambled eggs. The chicken has made a commitment. I look at bacon and ham. The hog has made full surrender. That's the difference. You know, a commitment or uh, surrender. (laughs) Some of you have never heard that before, obviously. But a lot of us want to do the commitment part without the surrender part. And now Jesus, let's come right to where he is. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's beginning this prayer, an agonizing prayer. Other accounts in the New Testament tell us that he prayed with such agony that his sweat became as blood pushing through the pores of his skin. The agony, the agony of his praying. He went a little farther He went farther than he'd gone before. He went farther than any man had gone before. But I'm fascinated by this term a little farther. How how far had Jesus already come? This is what I think about. We meet him at the Garden of Gethsemane and it says he went a little farther. But I stand on that point and look back and I see how far he has already come. I want to take you on this journey for a moment because when we talk about going a little farther, it may be that some of us are saying, well, that's a lot to ask. That's, that's a lot for him to require of me to go any farther. Well, let's think about what Jesus did. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, in the prologue, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was, was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. Where was Jesus before He came to earth? Where was he? He was in that eternal past with his father. He was in that heavenly realm. And he came from there to here. He'd already come a long way. Before coming to earth in his incarnation, he was in a world where he was that world's chief delight. He occupied the throne of glory. He was worshipped and adored by a great host of angels. Cherubim and seraphim bowed down 
before him. He was the centerpiece of the world. Angels stood ready to respond to every command. But a day came when Jesus disrobed himself of the royal robes of heaven and he laid them aside. He laid aside his scepter of universal power and he came down to us. According to 1 John chapter 3, he left a world where he was that world's chief delight. And he came to be born in a barn in poverty, to experience the vilest treatment imaginable, to experience uh, rejection, to be spit upon, cursed, laughed at, rejected, beaten, tortured, crucified, naked, in open humiliation. He had come a long, long way. He had come from that world where he was, that world's chief delight, loved, worshipped, adored, obeyed. To come to a world that was very opposite. And now he still has farther to go. Farther to go. When we think that he may be pushing us too much and requiring us to go too far. Requiring too much of us. Let us remember the distance he went. He always went a little farther. He went to Gethsemane. We have it here in Matthew 26 and verse 39. It was there that he said, Not my will, but your will be done. Here he did battle with the flesh. And he overcame the flesh. But he went from Gethsemane, Gethsemane to Gabbatha. In John chapter 19, verse 13. And Pilate, this is an interesting encounter. It's an interesting conversation because at Gabbatha, right there it was that Pilate had his conversation with Jesus And he says, why are you not speaking to me? Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I have the power? I have the power to crucify you. I have the power to release you. Can you see Pilate with his finger in our Lord's face saying, don't you know who I am? Why do you stand there in this insulting silence and not talk to me? I hold in my hand the power to pronounce your death. I hold in my hand the power to release you and to set you free. And Jesus spoke up and he said, You could have no power at all against me unless I'd given it to you from above. At Gabbatha, Jesus overcame and experienced the victory of world systems, of government and religion. He went from Gabbatha to Golgotha, Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three, And in Golgotha, here he crushed the head of the serpent. And he won the victory over Satan. But from Golgotha, he went to the grave. And in the grave, he did battle with sin, hell, death in the grave. And on the third day, he got up victorious over the grave. And then his journey was not over. He's going full circle. He came from glory, and then he returned to glory. But he came a long, long, long way. He went farther and farther and farther to accomplish the will of God. Can't we take just a little step farther in our own lives and relationship to him? I want to say three things about this place and I'll be finished. It'll just take a moment. But I want to say, first of all, this place to which Jesus came was a place of surrender. It was a place of absolute surrender. He went, he left Peter, James, and John They had left the larger crowd. They went a little farther, but Jesus went even farther. He went into a place of solitude. He went into a place of quietness. The clamor of the crowd was gone. The people of the city were asleep. The disciples, unfortunately, were also asleep. God does business with us in the quiet place. I've said this so many times. 
But it took me a while to get there myself, and I'm not exactly uh, certain that I'm as far along, I know I'm not, as I would like to be in this regard. But so often we, we look for God in the crowd, in the public worship service, uh, in the conference setting, in the bigger events where there's the, the music and the preaching and the noise. Could I say to us tonight that I don't believe, now you can disagree with me, Uh, if you want to, but I I don't believe that that's where God does his deepest work in us. I think God does his deepest work in us, not in the crowd, but alone, not in the noise, but in the quiet place. Do you remember when Elijah went to the cave running from God, an act of disobedience out of fear? God found him hiding in a cave. There he was, drawn up as a whip puppy, not knowing what to do, stood as a great prophet of God on Mount Carmel, but the word of a woman scared the wits out of Elijah and he ran for his life. And God spoke to him. He sent an earthquake and he sent, he sent a great and mighty wind and then he sent a fire. And God was not in any of these things. And that portion of scripture describing God's conversation with Elijah, he said, I wasn't in the earthquake and I wasn't speaking through the wind and I wasn't speaking through the fire. I'm speaking to you in a still, small voice. I want to say to us that if you're listening for thunder, if you're listening for the clap of thunder, if you're looking for the flash of the lightning, you can go a lifetime and never experience that. But tune your heart and tune your ear to the quiet, easy voice of God and you will hear Him speaking. He will be speaking to your heart. Noise sedates the secular mind. Just look around. Just look around at our world today. Look at your home. Look at your place of business. Look at your work. Look at wherever you may be. Noise sedates the secular mind. Find a man running from God and I'll show you a noisy environment. Noise all around him. Jesus often, as a regular habit of his life, went out into the solitary place, into the mountains. It was a place of quietness. But it was also a place of discernment. You say, I want to know the will of God. Go to the quiet place. Go a little farther. Go a little deeper into that prayer closet. Go a little deeper into the solitude with God. Close the door to the prayer closet. Listen to the quiet voice of God with an open Bible and your heart bowed before God. And he will speak in the quietness. And things will become clear to us in those places and those moments that were absolutely undiscernible. Prior to that, our discernment for the will of God comes when we go to this place where Jesus is to seek the will of God. That's what he's doing. I've come, Father, to talk to you about what is about to happen. As far as I can understand from eternity past, the eternal counsels in heaven, I came here. My purpose in coming from heaven to earth was redemption's plan, a cross. And I'm standing at the shadow of that cross. I'm standing now. At the moment that this is about to happen, I just want to be sure, is this, is this it? Am I understanding your will? Am I understanding clearly? I tell you, sometimes when we get up against the realities of life, the, the human nature wants to ask, are we sure? 
God, are you sure? That's what Jesus is doing. But I want to say, he said to his father, I want to make it very clear, though I'm having this little conversation with you, I'm not here to back out. I'm not here to stand down. I'm just here for clarification. If this is the way we're to go, I'm ready to go. Not my will, but your will be done. I'll drink every bitter dreg of the cup until it is empty and dry. I just want clarification that we're on course for your will. That's how we ought to pray for the will of God. Near to the heart of God, the old hymn. Do you know it? There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. There is a place of comfort sweet near to the heart of God, a place where we, our Savior, meet near to the heart of God. There is a place of full release near to the heart of God. There is a place where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee near to the heart of God. There is a place to be found that is near to the heart of God. You may have to go a little farther than you've gone tonight. You may have to take another step or two to step into that place. But not only is there a place mentioned here, there's a price mentioned here. Verse 39 and verse 42 of our chapter here in Matthew 26, verse 39 says, O Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, if it is possible this, that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but you, your will, but you, as you will. And then verse 42, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away, For me, unless I drink it, your will be done. What is Jesus doing? He's coming to the place of absolute, absolute, full and complete surrender to the will of God. There's no more conversation now. There's no more anything. I mean, he 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 is he's from this moment forward ready to move on to the cross that is head ahead. So the first thing I observe here is that there is a word of no refusal. I do not refuse. I do not disobey. I do not refuse to take the cup. This cup. And by the way, the cup was not physical death. Jesus didn't fear physical death. And I think you know that. But what happened on the cross was a spiritual death. It was a physical death to be sure. But Jesus had never been separated from his father. And when that darkness came, not like we'll see tomorrow, we're talking about midnight at midday around the cross, the face of the Heavenly Father was turning away from His Son. Why? Because God cannot look upon sin. He had never committed a sin, but all of the sins of the world had been placed upon Him. And the face of God turned away because He cannot look upon sin. And that darkness from noon till three came upon the earth. And it was in those moments that Jesus said, Eli, Eli, Masabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus was discussing with his father. That's what was in that cup that he was discussing. Martin Luther, the German theologian, in studying this passage, said, God, forsaken of God, forsaken of God, who can understand that? Who can understand that? But the next thing I see here is not only a word of no refusal, but the second thing I see in these verses is a work of redemption. 
And that's what Jesus came to do, to be nailed to the cross, to purchase our salvation. Now, the disciples didn't fully understand that. And Peter, or whichever one it was, it retrieved his dagger and cut the ear off of, the, of uh, the man in the garden. He wasn't going for an ear. He was going for a juggler vein. But he got an ear. And you remember Jesus said, put up your dagger, put up your sword. We're not going to handle this business, God's business, this way. The servant of the high priest was, was injured. And Jesus, Jesus made it very clear that he had uh, angels at his beck and call. In fact, he said, I've got 12 legions. There's 12 legions of angels sitting right there ready to come here. If I just say come, coming. Do you know how many 12 legions are? 72,000. 72,000 angels. You say, could have Jesus gone back to heaven without going to the cross? Yes, he could have. But where would that have left you and me? He came to fulfill God's purpose. And he surrendered totally to God's purpose. Now what happened after this? I want you to use your imagination. You have to, as John Phillips and Warren Wearsby teach us, use your sanctified imagination. When I go into that garden and I see Jesus praying... I see a man that is in absolute anguish. The brow is furrowed. The sweat is pouring. The soul is is being wrenched with the agony of these moments and this prayer. Seeking the face of the Father. Sweat becomes as drops of blood. Do you see the anguish? If we could have been standing by looking at Jesus, we would have said the man is in pain. He is in excruciating pain. There's a, there's a battle going on inside of him that exceeds anything we have ever seen before. But the moment he said, not my will, but your will be done. The brow went smooth. The sweat stopped flowing. That's our imagination. I can see the change. Peace, peace. Absolute peace comes over Jesus. And he goes back to his disciples and he said, let's go. The time has come. The time has come. And tonight I would say to you and I'd say to my own heart, if we want the peace of God, if we want to break through that wrestling match that we have with God, struggling over his purpose, his will for us, and sometimes not wanting to let go, sometimes not wanting to do what he says to do, living short of going a little farther, living short of going far enough to be right in the center of his will. But when we do, the peace comes. When Jesus spoke about giving peace, he said, I'll give you a peace that the world cannot give you, and I'll give you a peace that no man can understand. I'll give you peace that the world can't give you, and the world can't take away from you. That's peace that passes all understanding. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a place where that peace is found, and it's going to be a little bit farther than most of us have gone. Amen? I see Jesus fulfilling his heavenly father's purpose for his life and this moment of full surrender full surrender not my will but your will be done let's stand together for a word of prayer and um, we will have a moment to respond as God would speak to your heart
Father, we ask you please to etch upon our hearts, the fleshly tablets of our hearts, the words you want us to take away tonight. And I pray that certainly something has been said and done in this service that would communicate, that has communicated with the hearts and lives of the men and women and young people present, words of encouragement, words of instruction, words of help. Lord, the Christian life is a challenging life to live. We face so many hurdles, so many challenges, so many pushbacks. But we know that it is a life that is made possible when we obey you, when we submit to you, when we're single-minded, when we surrender fully. Then and then alone can we adequately live in a way that would be pleasing to you in all that we do. So we ask you to give us Holy Spirit strength that our lives would be in the center of your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray.